This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. Deb, thank you again for coming back uh, again for another segment. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks, Whitney. Yeah, I know. Honored to get to further the conversation. And I want us to jump in and really talk about the capital raising environment right now. I get lots of questions about this. Uh, and of course, most of you know, us and, and lots of other operators, I don't know, are, are raising from retail investors. I've heard more talk within that environment about institutional investors as well and what that looks like. And you are uh, an expert in this. And so I'm wanting to dive in right there and maybe you share just the about the current environment, capital raising environment as you see it. And then let's talk uh, even at an elementary level of what institutional capital or investors are compared to the retail and why one or the other. Uh, but first, how do you see the current in capital raising environment? How does that affect you know, your all's business? Well, there's a couple of different perspectives you can bring to it. The, the first is looking at it from an institutional investor's perspective. And then the other side of it is to look at what's actually going on on the ground with respect to the projects that are looking for capital. On the, on the one hand, you have institutions that are dealing with allocation issues with the decline in real estate prices. But at the same time, they have capital that needs to be deployed and needs to be invested. So I would say that investors are certainly pickier and more selective than they've been over the past couple of years. But at the same time, I think they are still putting capital to work and they are still evaluating where it should be put to work. And that may lead to changes across products, changes across market, and changes across the spectrum of the risk-reward profile. But nonetheless, they wear those two hats on a daily basis. But then there are other folks on the institutional side that have plenty of dry powder that they raised during the, the last couple of years, and they're sitting on it. They can afford to be patient, but again, they're selective um, around the product they're investing in as well as the markets. On the other side of the coin, you have the projects themselves. Now, remember, projects can, you can market them to institutions, and, but the, which is a big space. It can be, you know, sovereign wealth funds. It could be Asian investors. It could be foreign investors. It could be here at home, pension plans, endowments, insurance companies, foundations. There's a lot of different avenues to which uh, you can source capital from. And I think that those, uh, and then it comes down to what the risk reward profile looks at that property. I think some segments, it is definitely harder to raise capital. And then I think uh, with the market shifts during COVID, it's pushing capital in certain directions. So products like single family homes for rent, cold storage, self-storage, industrial outdoor storage, workforce housing, those are favored niche classes right now. Those things are in demand from investors. No question they're in demand. But there are other segments of the market, which I think are tougher. And I'm not going to go down the office path because everyone knows that market is tough. Um, but even within the other products, it kind of depends on, on where you are. I mean, does warehouse do as well as iOS right now? I don't think so. So it kind of just depends where, where it is. And then there's a meeting in the middle. Okay. So you're the most the majority of the capital that you all are dealing with is coming from where? Institutions. In we only deal in the institutional market. So we don't deal uh, typically with high net worth investors at all. Uh, the checks that we're dealing with is a minimum of at least $10 million. But a lot of the 
vehicles we're raising are multiples of that. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and and elaborate even for the the newest of listener right now. What does that mean, institutional investor? Who would that be? What is that dynamic of of that type of investor? We don't deal with individuals, we at all. So there's no individuals. We're not dealing with the retail market at all. Uh, we will deal with uh, a family office. Yeah. But our typical um, folks that we deal with are either investment managers, asset managers, yeah. state pension plans, corporates, foundations, endowments, insurance companies. And then let's talk a little bit about how you work with someone like that. Uh, and I, I think on the show often we're talking about working with retail investors. And But I've heard more talk, like I mentioned earlier, about you know, working with institutional capital or investors lately, you know, than I probably ever have, you know, ac across the the network of people that are on the show and, and listeners. But speak to working with institutional capital and maybe some of the differences there. And, and I don't know, even somebody that's never done that before, maybe why they would start to go the institutional route. On the institutional side, we can work with them either as clients or as counterparties. So as clients, we can help them with allocations into real estate, growth strategies. If they want to, for example, acquire a multifamily operator, we could do that. If they want to acquire a credit manager, we could help them do that, as well as to figure out strategic uh, growth for their business within the real estate sector. Um, and then we can look at um, uh, folks that, and we're seeing a little bit more of this, where institutions, they may operate and provide capital to projects. But now they've realized they should be accessing and getting a piece of the return associated with the GP or the culprit, but they're not quite sure how to structure that deal. And so they will come to us to help them figure out how to structure, particularly if it's with an existing partner or if they're looking at new partners, being able to take two pieces as opposed to just one. And that'll just give them some alpha return above the LP typical return. So there's, that's how that piece works. Um, and we also do fairness opinions, devaluations opinions too. So we've got that. And then on the other side, we can work with an investment manager or an owner operator who's looking to raise capital for a project or projects, or they want to, uh, they have a fund and they're trying to raise capital for the fund, or they're looking at strategic alternatives themselves. And then we can go to our institutional relationships and see if they're interested in acting as the counterparty to that transaction. So we operate in both sides. I think that gives us a unique perspective uh, on if you're we're working with investment managers or owner operators, et cetera, because we have a, a pretty good um, access um, as well as knowledge as to around what the institutional market is doing and what they're looking to do. What do you see that's most attractive, you know, to institutional capital right now? Uh, by product. By product yeah. type, is that what you're asking? Yeah. yeah. So we talked a little about the vats before. I think right now you get a bread crumb or two when you hear it raised the first time. You start hearing it a few more times. You're like, oh my goodness, there really is a strong interest in this. And then we'll go find a client to work with in that space, which is how we use work with it on particularly on the manager side or even on the capital raising side. So right now, single family homes for rent, build to rent, are uh, really attractive classes. Anything in private credit particularly as a bolt-on of capability, is pretty interesting. Self-storage is interesting. Senior housing, manufactured housing, anything that's a niche product right now 
is pretty attractive to the institutional market because they're what's kept those stepping back for a second. What's kept those things niche products in many ways is because the check was too small for an individual project, yeah. right? And so if it's sub $10 million, a big corporate state pension plan who's managing billions is not going to be interested in putting out a $5 million check. So what happens is, is all of those products that have um, small check sizes are usually not institutional. Well, anytime you have a massive market dislocation, folks look at those sectors and they go, well, hang on a second, can we get an alpha return from them? Because it is very fragmented and it's not quite institutionalized. And so then how a market becomes institutionalized is you take those niches and then a lot of different people do them and they start amassing a lot of different portfolios. And then some institution comes and starts buying those portfolios. Voila, you have an institutional product. But that's a little bit how it happens. I mean, that's how student, ha- student housing came about and the product still storage came about. And we were pushing your single family homes for rent as an institutional class 10 years ago and didn't get a whole lot of traction. But now there's a lot of institutions looking at playing in it. So it, it really does depend. But I, I guess my takeaway is compared to two years ago, institutions are looking at a lot more different things. And I guess I should mention the magic word of distress. Uh, because folks, the institutions believe that distress is coming. And so that uh, they're looking to reserve capital or to move how they're looking at risk reward uh, in terms of where they think distressed opportunities can come from. And I think you know, distress can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. But in general, that buzzword distress is uh, there's interest in it. Yeah. And what's, uh, I was just thinking about there, so many investors that retail are institutional, it seems are they're holding the capital on the sidelines, right? Waiting for that moment. Uh, what do you think is going to change that? Is it going to be interest rates? Is it going to, when they say, okay, now's the time to get in, what's, what's going to be that, that flag for them? To... Yeah, they see someone else go first. They see someone go first. And someone, there is, look, there is activity in the market. There is no question I think there's activity. And, and in some products, I think there's more activity than it was two years ago. In other products, I think there is less. And yes, there is some capital that's sitting on the sidelines, um, driven by sorting out allocations usually because they're over-allocated. But there's, there's as an equal probably amount of folks that have capital and needs to be deployed. And so it, it just depends on, it's so individualized. Uh, and it is still very, very individualized. I think in general, there's probably, you know, a lower amount of activity across the entire real estate industry, maybe on the asset side. But I find on the corporate side, we're incredibly active within the private markets as folks look to figure out how to play the changing market. I think we can all agree that the market's dislocated and we can all agree this, a lot of things happened over the past two years uh, to create arbitrage opportunities. And now it's just a question of how you play those arbitrage opportunities. How are you, even as a, as a company, uh, staying in front of those institutional investors and are maybe ways you're adding value to them or just keeping the relationship alive until they're ready to invest? Yeah, look, because we have such a variety of services that we have, we always have something to talk about with, with investors, always. And, and whether it's around market trends helping them figure out where to deploy. Even if they have, let's take, for example, they're over-allocated. Well, my proposal would be, okay, you're over-allocated. Why don't you let us take a portfolio of your assets and we'll sell them? You will no longer be over-allocated, 
right? Let us come in and we'll, we'll let you know where the opportunities are, where you can still get great valuation off a segment. Let us help you deal with that. That's, I mean, so we always have something to talk about, even on the manager side. It's like, okay, so you, um, you're still looking to grow your business. You can acquire someone. We can help you raise capital. We can help you deploy capital. We can introduce you. Let's just say you decide you want to get in your multifamily uh, investment vehicle and you want to do development. Okay, I can introduce you to some developers. So there's always things to talk about. Um, and, and I think it's because we have the diversity across our businesses. And, and probably more importantly is that most advisors um, don't spend the time getting granular um, about the sector and about the managers and about the people and getting close to the ground. And, and as a firm, we do. And, and so we're an atypical firm and it's not, it's not really so much a criticism of the larger firms as opposed to how it's evolved. But at a larger firm, you'll have a real estate group, an insurance group, a fig group, right? And, and there's groups and then you have equity and the fixing. So you have all these different groups that have to work together that have different incentives of performance. Whereas, and so you've siloed out based on the size of your firm, pockets of what you know. Whereas, so at a larger firm, you're not going to have someone sitting there talking to a six insurance company one week, between those talking to some pension plans, selling a property manager and rising a private placement for a multifamily firm. That's just not going to happen because the firms are not structured in order to facilitate that kind of um, knowledge, which all sits within our team. And we have different people doing different things, but it's shared captive knowledge. And so we were able to cross-pollinate across the different products and the different types of institutions to really get a good sense of what's going on out there. Yeah, love that. Uh, that you can help them almost in any phase of the business or process that they're in, it sounds Correct. like. So you can, man, you can speak right into them no matter where they're at. I love that. And yeah, that's incredible. And I think a lot of us just dream of being in that position or being able to do that. But I want to transition just a little bit because you and I talked briefly about this. It's another thing that you all do in-house or, and we could talk about raising money all day, I think. Uh, but I want to just glean a little bit from you on how you all help companies grow. You mentioned that in the first segment and and you all are you know good at that. And you mentioned a couple of things that I could relate to personally as well. And, and just building that mature business, right? A lot of times, as you and I discussed, as entrepreneurs, man, we're thinkers, we're, we're dreamers, right? We go make things happen and build these processes and hire people. And then it's like, oh my goodness, what, what do we do now? <laughs> How do we run this thing? How do we got it off the ground? I wanted you to be able to speak into that a little bit over the last few minutes here and help us. There's so many listeners who they may be getting started or they may have a few properties, but then again, there's a number of larger operators as well. Uh, that I know are going to relate to exactly that conversation you and I were having. Well, there's a difference between an entrepreneur and a manager, right? So uh, an entrepreneur is the guy who builds it. And then once it's built, you have somebody who, who manages and stabilizes it and takes it from there. And a lot of times they're not the same person. And they don't need to be, they can be. But uh, we have a segment of, of clients, particularly in our consulting side, they get their business to a size. And then it's now what do I do? It's how do I make sure my organization can survive without me? So if I drop dead tomorrow, what happens to my company that I just, I put all this time into building? Do I have the right people in the right seats? And particularly if you grow faster, your organization may not have developed on a strong foundation. 
And so part of our job is to come in and make sure it's got a strong foundation, making sure you got the right people in the right seats, doing the right things, that roles and responsibilities, policies and processes, all of those things that you've got a strong foundation. From there, we also look at, well, okay, well, let's get down and figure out what you're really good at. A lot of people think they know the answer to that. They do. And, and we don't always agree. We sometimes find that they're better at more than what they thought. And so it's really calibrating, taking their nugget and then figuring out how do we grow you, right? And, and we look at growth through product distribution and geography. And so if you're looking at growing, it's looking at the core of what makes you exceptional. And they're not going too far beyond that because if you take on too much, you end up not getting anything done at all. And you don't need to blow up your existing organization and the price as the price for looking for growth. So that's one piece of, of where we come in. We can come in either on looking at valuation if you want to deal with succession planning or changing your comp structure. And then we come in on strategy and figuring out how to grow your business. And then there's also a segment of institutionalizing your business. Right. If you've got all, all because you have a lot of properties, that doesn't make you institutional. Unfortunately, if you got to have policies and procedures and processes and be able to talk the language of an institution, you need to be able to position yourself and market yourself in the way an institution will understand and appreciate. Because the, the high net worth accredited investor market is very different than the institutional market. They are looking at different things. And they focus on different things. And so we can come in and help them figure out how do we make you institutional market ready? And so that you, and then to explore options with how to do that. If you own a lot of properties, maybe use those properties to seed a vehicle. Maybe use those properties to secure a separate account with a big institution. Depends on what you have, where it is and what it's worth. Love that. If you're going to, you're going to look like an institution, you got to be able to talk like, the language like an institution. That's yeah. right. That's right. And yeah, and we come from the institutional market. So as a result, we're, we're pretty good at that. And I think we've built a reputation at this point that if we take something to institutions, they, they accept and believe that this is a great product and this is a good manager. I mean, the reality is that's our opinion and we will obviously do the best before we take it there, but institutions all do their own homework. And as I say to clients, we can help open the door and get you in front of folks, but it's really up to you because every one of these investors is going to do their own due diligence. They're going to put you through the ringer and figure out if you're as good as you say you are. But if we, at least we understand the product that is going to be attractive, the types of qualities that institutions look for and how you, how you create transparency and how you communicate and deliver who you are and what you do to them in an efficient, productive way. Yeah, love that. Speak to, and there's a couple of things you highlighted there and we don't have time to go into every piece of it, but institu institutionalizing your business, you, know, you talked about the processes, you know, must have the processes in place, those things. Give us just a couple of tips, a couple of things that you need to be thinking about. You need to have this in place, do this or document sure. this way. Do you have an investment committee? That's an easy one. How do you make decisions on investing assets? And then who sits on that investment committee and how are decisions made? Do you have underwriting standards? Do you have a, a policy procedure as to things you look at to underwrite? So that if you, if you founder, we're not here tomorrow, would all of the people in your shop know, can they go somewhere and know how to underwrite a property? With no verbal communication, can they do it? Have you created frameworks that can be passed down so that the rest of your organization 
are all towing the same line and operating within the same framework that you've created? Or is it verbal? Because it's verbal, it's not transferable, right? The whole pole of being institutional is making things transferable and making sure that they resonate throughout an organization so that there's some standardization. I love that. You said it, if, it, if it's verbal, it isn't transferable. <laughs> I think that's, it's not transferable. That's it's such not. a good line right there. You think thinking. it is because you've told someone? That's a game of telephone. Yeah. The next guy, well, did you tell the first guy the same things you told the second guy? Or did you tell him this guy is some more and that guy less? I mean, it's hard to do that. Well, you really, the ultimate goal for an entrepreneur should be able to take everything in their head and put them down on a piece of paper in a way that people can follow it. That's, I'm not trying to suggest that you can't teach them and you can't do verbal. I'm not suggesting that because that's how a lot of ways process. But as your organization grows, you can't give that verbal to everyone. What happens if you've got 100 people? How do you tell 100 of those people? You're going to pull them aside and have a little you know, sidebar conversation? No, they're going to look to, and then those people will have people under them and people under them. How do you get that out of your head so that all of these people know how you do things? what your company stands for, what its philosophy is, what its vision is, and how you plan to go, how you do deals, how you manage, how you talk to, talk to investors, how do you talk to each other, right? How do you do all of that? And you need some kind of framework so that everyone can operate in the same direction. And verbal is important, but it can't substitute. It needs to be both. Where do you document all that? You usually, you well, different folks are differently, but uh, most folks will document it. Institutions definitely document it. And then they have it on drive where folks can access it. Yeah. They teach it. They have training. They train around it. They coach around it. They verbalize around it. Um, and they institutionalize it, meaning it rattles through an entire organization. All right. And then you know, the second, the next thing, you, or one of the other things you mentioned was being able to talk the language, right? And somebody that's a growing business coming up that, that direction. I got some tips on being able to speak the language of an institution. Yeah, being able to talk in terms of risk reward profile, what the appropriate level of risk an institution is usually willing to take to the amount of return. And that's within bookends, right? So there's no holy grail as to what the answer is. But you need to be able to be conversant that when they say, well, that's not enough, you know what they mean, right? Talking about waterfalls and talking about prefs and, and being able to talk about lockups that it's in debt. Different things, you need to be able to talk within frameworks of, of how you conduct your business and how you do your underwriting. Um, so those things, I, I think, are very important, particularly as we're going through a new market cycle, being able to verbalize as well as document um, what you think you do differently, what makes you a good manager, what makes you a good investor, being able to articulate what those things are and simply saying, I'm good at it or I figure it out. None of those things are good enough. You have to be able to verbalize it. So for an example, I'm a MES lender. Okay, how do you think about attachment point? How do you think about the res and your size of what you're prepared to do on the MES versus the senior? Now you're starting at those questions, being able to articulate of what, how you think about doing a MES loan, that's what an institution wants to hear. Yeah, I have a friend who just recapitalized eight or 10 properties at one time with an institutional buyer. And he said, Whitney, I, I hired somebody that's worked with institutional before to come in and help us with that process, right? He, he said, I knew that I was not the one to go have those conversations. Or he, did, he, he just felt like they would have a, a higher success rate by bringing somebody in that had that experience, you know, as opposed to him, you know, trying to do that right off the bat. 
Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, look, that's smart. It's smart. You are, you're talking to an advisor. So I get paid to do this stuff all the time. Right. And what's often remarkable to me is how many incredibly talented real estate investors there are who do not know how to run a company or talk to an institution. Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it amazes. It absolutely amazes me. But, um, and that's okay because you, we can't, we can't be good at everything. So you got to pick your spots. But some incredibly very talented, very wealthy people uh, need people like me to help them navigate through that process. As we round down the show, uh, what, what would you say uh, is your, and of course, in, in this regard, it'll say the retail investor, just your best advice for the retail investor right now, passive investors. Do your due diligence. All because somebody said it and read the documents. It's, if you've got a, a PPM or a marketing document, Questions. Ask a lot of questions. All right. And do your due diligence. Make sure you understand the document you are signing. It is painful. Some of these documents are very long, but make sure you understand what is in it. All right. And what you're agreeing to do and how your capital is going to be deployed. Do your due diligence if it's on an asset. Who is the manager? Do your due diligence on whoever that manager is and make sure they're good. All right. And so making sure that they've got a strong reputation because they're the custodian of what you're getting done at the property. So you can't just underwrite the asset because the, your information is based on what that manager says. So do your due diligence. It's upfront. It is worth it. It's painful, but it'll be worth it. Uh, Deb, I, I can't thank you enough for your time today uh, and just sharing your wisdom and, and experience with the listeners and myself. We've talked about uh, so many different things, I feel like, but you have just dove in in depth on a, a number of things and provided a ton of value to us. You've given back to us in a, in a great way. Grateful to have met you and have you on the show. Tell the listeners again, though, how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you. You can go to our website, which is com. Or you can go to LinkedIn. We have, you can type in Senecap Group will pop up and you can, I will pop up. You type in Deborah Smith Senecap, I will pop right up as well. Feel free to follow us. You can feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to chat. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.